Well, we have been in a uh, series of messages recently called One Story, uh, just sort of as in an attempt to help uh, some of our youth who have been preparing Bible studies at their schools and elsewhere to give them kind of a framework for understanding Scripture and how to prepare a Bible study. And our hope is that this will be valuable to all of us as we uh, spend time in God's Word. We'll, this will help us uh, develop a framework for understanding every part of God's Word. Um, we've looked at the fact that the Bible is one narrative, one story uh, in its whole, um, that it is spoken by one voice, the voice of God, through many agents. Um, We've talked about the fact that the Bible is understandable, that God gives us his word because he wants us to come to certain conclusions and that this is possible and even desirable. Um, And we've looked at the fact that there's one compelling motive behind all of scripture, and that is love. Uh, This is God's love letter to our hearts to try and reach us and change us and grow us into the men and women of God that he's created us to be. And so today we're coming to uh, one of the um, complicating factors of understanding the word of God, and that is very simply that the word of God comes to us in many different genres, that is many different styles of writing. And if you think about um, the, the different styles of writing that, that you encounter in, the, in any given week, um, from a, uh, a road sign to a history assignment in your uh, high school history class, or um, a letter, or a credit card bill, or any other number of styles of writing that come to you, and, and we don't read them all the same right? We read different things different ways. Um, If you're like me, you just don't even open the credit card bill because you just don't want to see that today, right? Just kidding. Um, But different styles require different approaches to understanding them. And that's what we want to explore today is how the the scriptures are uh, written in different styles of writing. And I was hoping, I was hoping to hit all the high points and uh, had a terrible week in many ways and a great week in other ways um, and uh, decided to just sort of cut my losses. We're going to focus on the Old Testament today and some point in the future we'll roll this same idea into our understanding of New Testament genres. Um, but today we're going to take a look at uh, the the primary three uh, styles of writing that are found in the Old Testament. And then just sort of practically, if you're you're trying to study a passage, how do you approach these different styles of Scripture? So in order to begin, I would like to uh, read to you from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, This is classic Old Testament story. I've, I've picked a story that you're all probably familiar with, and I've excerpted just a portion of the story because we don't have time to do the whole thing or space or paper, etc., etc. You get the idea. So we're just going to read a snippet out of the story of David and Goliath. 
a little portion that sort of sets the tone and the framework for the whole thing. So I'm going to be reading in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 45, 46, and 47. And when when this passage refers to the Philistine, it's referring to Goliath, by the way. So here we go. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Um, it should be noted that, that Goliath has just said to little David, uh, I'm going to make you food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field today, and you know, I'm going to turn you into hamburger, basically. And uh, so David just sort of repeats back to Goliath what he had just said, and you have this um, climax in the story, right? This, this point where the conflict reaches its peak and we don't know how it will be resolved. Like any good story, uh, there's this, this place where uh, all of our attention is gathered and all the questions are raised. And then the rest of the narrative will resolve the conflict and answer the questions, hopefully. So, what are we looking at here? We're, we're looking at a style of writing called narrative. Um, narrative is just simply a story. A story, and every good story, as I just said, has you know, sort of a, a beginning, uh, a conflict, a climax, and a, what do they call it, denouement? All right? Um, and uh, that just means that it gets wrapped up at some point, Dan. That's what that means. Yeah. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Stories. Okay? You got that? Okay. It's all right. I want you to understand, man. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Good. All right. So, narrative in the Bible is history in the form of stories. It's, it's the history of redemption, the story of God's interaction with us, his people, over time. Um, Look for, when you're reading a story in the Bible, look for the plot, the tension, and the resolution. Okay? Those are the the sort of telling points in any story. It's it's sort of the, that's where we get to the message that's trying to be conveyed um, look for the main idea in that context, in the context of the whole story. Um, it is common to find people when they are preaching or leading a Bible study, etc., who will just sort of grab one little verse out of the middle of the story and use it to make a point. Um, 
before you do that, please read the whole story. Get a sense for the, the development of the plot, the complexity of the characters, the conflict and the resolution so that you understand the context in which that verse was originally written. And then if the way in which you're tempted to use that verse is not consistent with what the context tells you, then either change what you're trying to teach or move on to some other passage so that you're not uh, confusing your listeners with um, sort of competing meanings within, a sa- within the same passage. Context is your friend. It will help guide you to the meaning of any story. Just look at the parts, follow along, and pay attention to how they bring out the main idea within the context of that story. So narrative is history in the form of stories. Narrative is revelation in the form of stories. Um, We should always ask, what does the story tell us about God? Um, How often have we heard the story of David and Goliath? Okay, and even even when we do this with our kids in children's ministry, we can forget that the story's not about David. It's it's about God working through David. Um, just like whatever happens in Malaysia is not about Mike and Tammy. It's about God working through Mike and Tammy, and and making some effective difference in the lives of people there, right? Because do you want a monument to Mike when it's all said and done? Probably not, right? Um, you know, those, those monuments, they get torn down. See that Saddam Hussein thing? You remember that? Right. We don't want that. Um, we want to remember that the story is about God. And David, amazingly, in the middle of his story, nails it. He just nails it. He says to Goliath, this ain't about me and you, buddy. This is about God. And you're messing with him. You're not messing with me. Or you might think you're messing with me. Where are we going here? Oh, look at that. Woohoo! All right. So every narrative in the Bible is ultimately telling us something about God. We should ask the question, what does this story tell us? about God. He is always the main character. Um, Again, if you turn on your radio and listen to some preacher, and I'm not picking any names out, I don't have anybody in mind here, okay? I really don't this time. I might get there, but I don't right now. Um, You could easily hear a sermon on David and Goliath And you could hear someone say, you need to be like David. You need to be brave in the face of your enemies. You need to stand up and move forward in the name of God. You need to blah, 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 blah. Not necessarily untrue, but it misses the point. God is not giving you his word so that you can be more like David. God is giving you his word so that you can be more like Jesus and that you can know that God saves, that God acts, that he moves, that he cares, that he loves, and that his power is what we are dependent upon. And so instead of an exhortation to make you 
do more for yourself, the scripture leads us to God as the main character. We need more of him, not more of our own resolve, strength, or um, human ability. And so, once we ask the question, what does this story tell us about God, then we can ask the question, what is the big idea that's being developed here? And in the story about David and Goliath, David just comes right out and tells us what the big idea is. Um, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Um, David gets it that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. The story's about God. The big idea is that God shows up that God is real, that he moves, that he's powerful, that he cares, that he loves. And so once we have gleaned the full context of the passage we're looking at and we've asked how does this lead us to understand God more fully and we've got a grasp of the big idea, then we can roll the passage into what's called application. Um, Application derived from stories is part of what biblical narrative is all about. How does this relate to me at school? How does this relate to me at work or at home or in the backyard? How does this relate to me? Um, Okay, avoid the Velveeta, right? We don't want cheesy, pat, moralizing conclusions that's selling God way too short, okay? Um, The dare to be a David is a failure to to get to the heart of what God is saying, all right? And so if that's all you've got is a cheesy little moralistic uh, pinpoint, just drop it. Drop it. Go read a psalm or something to your Bible study. Don't reduce the, the big idea that this is about God and his movement in the life of his people down to the fact that Jessica needs to be, to dare to be a David. Okay, D- Jessica, be a David. Slay your Goliath. Go out there. Face your fears, right? Again, at some point, that may be what God calls out of you. Okay, but only when he moves through you in his strength, in his power, by his spirit, to affect his will. And so, we don't want to be cheesy. We don't want to be simplistic. Um, and we don't want to uh, spiritualize things in ways that are cheesy. You know, What are the Goliaths in your life? You need to pick up five smooth stones and slay that Goliath. God is going to slay that Goliath in your life right now. You just got to believe. You just got to pick up those stones. Now I do have somebody in mind just in case you're wondering. All right. Um, This doesn't need to be cheesy. 
God is speaking through his word to bring us to a deeper understanding of who he is and how he works and how deeply and desperately we need his presence in our lives. And so as we avoid the Velveeta approaches, we want to stick to the ordinary principle. Um, The ordinary principle goes like this. I ain't David. And you probably are not either. But there were average, everyday, hardworking Israelites all around. What did they get out of this story? That David was stronger than Goliath? That David was smarter than Goliath? That David was anything other than, you know, whatever in relation to Goliath? No. What they got out of this story was that God showed up. That God did something that everyone present had to stop and recognize, wow, that was the hand of God. He, he cares. He loves. He moves. He acts. He shows up. And so identify in the narrative with the ordinary people, not the hero of the narrative, so to speak, because the hero of every biblical narrative is God, period. Identify with the regular people, and you will find them as you read. You'll, you'll see that ordinary perspective, and David even names it. He says, so that all these people around me will know that you are God. That's the point. Um, stick to that ordinary principle put yourself in the ordinary person's place where were they what was their takeaway from what happened and then ask the question how does this point us to Christ so the story of David and Goliath is ultimately not about David it's about God and it's a it's a type if you will he leaves an impression on the hearts of his people that says one simple thing. I I will show up. I will come and I will save. David even says it. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And God shows up in history in the person of Jesus Christ. And the story of David points us forward to that showing up and says this is kind of how it will work. That God will show up and the giants will fall and salvation will come to the hearts of my people. And so, okay, there's a little narrative, just a little rundown on how to read a story in the Old Testament. Um, Let me jump over uh, to the book of Psalms, and I want to read the 40th Psalm, just verses 1, 2, and 3. So Psalm 40, 1, 2, and 3, you hear these words. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Poetry is a major aspect of Old Testament writing. 
Um, in fact, poetry is actually bigger than the five books that are considered the poetic and wisdom writings of the Old Testament. All right, here we go. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Did I get them all? I think those are, those are called the poetic books of the Old Testament. Um, but most of the prophets wrote in poetry. Take the book of Isaiah, for example. The entire thing is in poetry. And then Daniel, parts of it are narrative, parts of it are poetry. A lot of the minor prophets are all poetry. Um, what does this mean for us? Okay. Well, it means several things. But Old Testament narrative... Is, is history. It's the telling of history in the form of stories that, that sort of show us how God was at work with his people. Poetry is, is very different and needs to be read very differently. Okay? All right. So, love is a rose. What do I mean? What do I mean? Love is a rose. If I said that to my wife on our anniversary, she would probably assume the best. Right? Oh, how sweet. You know? There's the the petals, the soft petals, and the lovely smell, and the bright colors. If I said that to my wife right after a fight, she probably would pick up on the thorny thing. Right? Um... But I mean it as a metaphor. I mean it as a way of conveying something that just uh, using ordinary words wouldn't do the job. And so God is much the same way at work through poetry to get down into our hearts uh, in ways that he might not arrive to that same destination um, through prose, through narrative, through story. So, biblical poetry uses colorful language that reveals the heart of God. We need to avoid straight literalism when reading poetry. Okay? Um, David does not mean that God is literally a rock. I mean, this is kind of silly, right? You read that, you get the idea that God is stable, he is fixed, he's unchanging. He's not actually an igneous rock he's God and he's, he, he's David is using this metaphor to help us understand something about the nature of God um, and instead of, of being sort of literalistic we're to seek the heart of the passage which means we let the passage into our own hearts to sort of roll around in there and see what it picks up um, so, colorful language, some more colorful than other, um, reveals God's heart, and it leads us to Christ. The language of the poetry of the Old Testament is to evoke something within us that is of the heart, that leads us towards the Savior who will take up residence in our hearts. Um, we must, when reading poetry, keep 
an eternal perspective. It's big picture. It's, um, we're, not, we're not nailing down the details of our faith in the Psalms. Uh, there are many things in the Psalms that teach us a lot about who God is and how he works. But the main impetus behind the Psalms is to draw our hearts into our relationship with God. And so we have to keep this eternal perspective when we're engaging God's word as it comes to us in the form of poetry and keep an eye on the line to the cross. I waited patiently for the Lord. Um, Think about that in the context of Israel. How long did they wait for their Messiah? Thousands of years. Far too long, I'm sure, in many of their own opinions. Um, He inclined to me and heard my cry. This is a theme you see repeated through the Old Testament. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And so this psalm points us to the cross and our need to put our trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That there is a a God who is fixed and steadfast and dependable upon whom we can rely in any part of life. And so we're drawn in through the heart in the poetry of God's word. Let me jump over to uh, a prophet real quick. We're going to go to Hosea uh, chapter 6 verse 4 where God says through his prophet What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." So prophecy is the other primary form of of literature in the Old Testament, and it is its own genre. And let me just try to clear up uh, a, a common misunderstanding. Most people think that prophecy is about the future or about predicting the future. Um, Prophecy is actually about God speaking to his people. It's, it's about, it's God's message to God's people. And so most prophecy is not uh, directly about some future coming event. It's about what God is saying to his people at that time. And many of those prophecies include things that will come to pass in the future because they're pointing us towards something God's always leading us somewhere. Um, But prophecy is not primarily about telling the future. It's primarily about God, just like Old Testament narrative or poetry. Um, And prophecy teaches us about God's will, God's righteousness, God's wrath, God's love, his hope. All prophecy sort of 
boils around these basic principles of God's word, his law, his love, his hope, his wrath. Um, It all sort of circles around in there. And some prophecy can sound quite harsh because it is. And, and what that tells us is that, that God has, he takes a, a hard position against our sin, against our, in this case, in the Hosea passage, against our hypocrisy, where we go and worship and, and make you know, sacrifices at the temple, so to speak, um, but our hearts aren't right. What's in here is all messed up, and we use religiosity to sort of cover over what's really going on in our hearts. And God says through his prophets continually that there are signs that he wants God's people to see. Prophecy is a series of signs for God's people, revealing God's loving heart and pointing to Christ's ultimate fulfillment. So even when the prophecies are harsh, I will I will scatter you from this place, you know, because you're hypocrites. You're not your hearts are in the wrong place. You're you're doing all the right things, but your hearts are wicked, crazy, bad, wrong. And so I'm going to I'm going to drop a little wrath and I'm going to let you suffer the consequences of your own hypocrisy and then I will bring you back I will restore you Uh, once God's people reach bottom and we recognize that God says now that I can work with come on back let's get let's get back on track let's get everything reoriented and so prophecy has places that sound very harsh uh, but ultimately they point us back to the loving heart of God, and Christ's ultimate fulfillment of everything before him. So, how do we apply prophecy? Here I'm I'm speaking primarily about Old Testament prophecy, but this would apply to the book of Revelation and a couple other passages in the New Testament as well. If we become obsessed with trying to predict the future of events, we have totally missed the point of prophecy. It's not that it has nothing to say about the future or even how it might happen, but that's not the point. What we do with prophecy is we we remember two things. That God's heart has not changed. He is unchanging. He doesn't flip-flop. And human nature has not changed. And so what the prophets said to Israel, God is still saying to us. We need to repent of our sinfulness, our selfishness, our self-righteousness, our hypocrisy, and any number of other aspects of ourselves we need to turn around and go back to the heart of God all prophecy is drawing us back to the heart of God and so 
I hope, I hope this is helpful, that when you crack open your Old Testament, you, you see something that is ultimately about God, that draws you in at the point of your heart into deeper relationship with your Creator, into a deeper understanding of your need for forgiveness, for grace, for love, for salvation. Because this is, this is really what it's about. It is one story, and it has many genres and through which the story is delivered uh, because we need that. Sometimes we need the heart to be affected. Sometimes we need the facts. Um, sometimes we need the, the harshness of the prophets to just tell us like it is what we need to hear. But all of it is ultimately about God, and in, it's put there to draw us back to him. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for your love. And we thank you for your word and the way in which you express your love to us through your word. May we, when we open your word, be filled with your Holy Spirit and led into a deeper understanding of your love for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that he fulfilled all that is in your word and that he ultimately brings to us what we cannot provide for ourselves. And we thank you for that grace, that love, that forgiveness, that salvation that in your providence lasts forever. May you minister those truths to our hearts today. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.